From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Matthew Petty from WMFE in Orlando. For the latest on Hurricane Matthew, stay tuned to your Florida Public Radio station and download the Florida Storms app. It gives you the most up-to-date information regarding the storm, its path, preparations, and aftermath. And as our colleagues are reporting on the storm, we're focused on the election and the biggest issue for most voters. It's the economy. Because of the storm, we spoke with two top surrogates on the economy for the Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton campaigns earlier this week. And you can add your voice to the conversation on social media. Use the hashtag DecisionFlorida. First up, Boris Epstein. He's an investment banker, finance attorney, and a senior advisor to the Trump campaign. Boris Epstein, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, I want to start by talking about the Federal Emergency Management Agency and with Hurricane Matthew top of mind and wondering what does disaster preparedness look like under a Trump administration? Well, so we're not going to be taking away any, uh, you know, a- any of the tools or, or the resources that are needed. We're going to be adding to them. That's what we're going to be. We're going to make sure that all of our uh, disaster protection, disaster relief, disaster prevention, as well as of course, security forces are fully equipped to deal with anything that comes their way. And we make sure that they, they are able to do so you know, ahead of time and not scrambling at the last minute. Boris, there's been a lot of building along the Florida coastline and the East Coastline uh, that is backed by the, uh, the federal flood insurance program, federal tax subsidies. Would your administration, a Trump administration, res- restrict rebuilding in flood zones or at-risk coastal locations if uh, federal well, subsidies are used? You know, so we would look at those issues very carefully and make sure that you know, the federal subsidies are not wasted and that they're not going to build in zones which are you know, in endangered, an endangered position. So that will absolutely be under consideration. Now, I'm not going to give you a blank statement here because we wouldn't want to want to do that. It's a nuanced issue. What we will do is we'll look at, uh, you, you know, look at the situation effectively on a case-by-case basis at first than to determine what the, you know, what the overall policy should look like. About the overall policy, just one final question about the flood insurance program, $24 billion in debt. Uh, a lot of that uh, was incurred 10, 12 years ago with Hurricane Katrina and the 2005-2006 hurricane season. Would a Trump administration keep the federal flood insurance program intact? Well, you have to keep some semblance of the program 100%. But we would, would we work with the debt as it is now? Of course. As you know, Mr. Trump has made a career of negotiating and making sure that, you know, at some point, if you can, you renegotiate the debt down. So that will be a priority as well to take the burden off the program and make sure it continues unbridled. I want to just come back to, uh, to a point you made earlier, Boris Epstein, about, um, you know, making sure things like the like FEMA are fully funded. I mean, when you look at what some economists are saying about uh, Donald Trump's plan, his economic plan, they're saying you're going to have to look for spending cuts in other areas. But you're saying that FEMA would not be one of those areas where there would be spending cuts? Listen, it's all about spending smartly, right? So could there be some portion uh, of any entity, any agency that is that is maybe doubling up with another agency? Well, then, of course, you have to look at it and you have to determine, you know, is the money being spent efficiently? But overall, the concentration is going to be to make sure that our disaster protection, disaster relief, disaster prevention are, you know, have all the resources they need. Uh, but, you know, we will make sure that the, the money is used smartly and the money is allocated in a smart manner. Is it uh, being used unwisely now, do you think? Not necessarily, but you, you, you know, if you look at the federal government overall, uh, there's a lot of efficiency issues. So that's why you need a businessman like Donald Trump to come in and make sure that there are no inefficiencies and the government does not, 
you don't do agencies that may be covering for the same issue. And I'm not talking about any one specifically, but you've seen that. You know, you see a lot of money being spent, for example, on you know, programs in the federal government that are no longer even used, programs in the Defense Department that aren't even used. So there's also a huge amount of fraud, waste, and abuse, and that goes toward every agency. So that's what we'll be combating with Mr. Trump's president. Let's talk about tax cuts, and considering Donald Trump has made tax cuts central to his economic plan, will he release his own tax returns? As he said repeatedly, his tax returns are under audit. When that audit is complete, he will release tax returns. But there's nothing, just to be clear, there's nothing in the IRS audit rules that prevents Donald Trump from releasing his tax returns while they're under audit. Every major attorney out there who's spoken on this issue, uh, they say that they would never advise their, their clients, if any part of their tax returns are under audit, to release them. Right. We had Robert Kovachev from Steptoe & Johnson on CNN say that. Sure, so, right. It's legal it's, advice, but there's no IRS point. policy that prevents it. Well, again, his, his taxes are under audit. He's been very consistent. He releases taxes when the audit's complete. Boris, let me ask you here. Would, would uh, Donald Trump's plans, his plans for the income tax system in the United States, which he wants to reduce from seven tax brackets to three tax brackets, uh, he wants to rid the tax system of various loopholes, would his plans impact tax strategies like the one that he used in 1995 when he incurred the $915 million annual loss? Well, you know, net operating loss and carry loss forward are a huge part of the tax code, and they're very and, and they're you know very well established, been around since 1918. So, and the reason they're there is to allow businessmen like Donald Trump, who go through tur- business turbulence in, like he did in the early 90s, to rebound, and then employ tens of thousands of people as he has. So, you have to be very careful because you don't you, you don't want to make don't want to make habit is for a business to have a couple of struggling years and then still be still be penalized for that once the business starts being starts turning around. So NOL and CLF are very important. So that's a strategy that probably wouldn't be changed or altered under uh, Donald T- uh, Trump's plans. Well, if you look, listen, it's not a strategy. It's it's a, it's the tax code, right? So it's not a strategy. It's not a loophole. It's a tax provision. So it's not like the carry interest uh, loophole. This is a tax provision that's well established. And you know the the key there again is that it promotes both businesses and individuals rebounding from tough tax times. And by the way, the New York Times itself has used the same provision as has Hillary Clinton. Uh, it, all, all perfectly legal, absolutely right, Boris. Uh, what does Donald Trump consider a strategy, a tax strategy versus a tax loophole? I mean, it's, a, it's not about parsing words. Here's what we're focused. On. <laughs> okay. We're focused well, on but but, but just to be clear, Boris, you're the one who who made that differentiation. Well, because you're you, as an attorney, uh, it's very important that you call things what they are. Right. So right. There's no such thing as a tax strategy. It's a you know the tax code is what it is. Okay. And you have to look at it. And there's a provision. Some things could be called a loophole that, that should be closed, like carried interest. And that's what Donald Trump has said to do. And by the way, he's already said that he will make changes to the tax code that may even impact him, his business, his family negatively, but he's willing to make those sacrifices for the American people. Now, there's one part of the, uh, the plan you haven't mentioned, and that's lowering the corporate tax bracket from 35 to 15 percent. That's a huge key to revitalizing the economy. Your businesses are being absolutely choked by the high corporate tax rate in this country. Let's uh, talk then about the plan to create 25 million jobs over the next decade. I mean, how would two, that would be two and a half times the number of jobs created over the past decade. Just how would that happen? How would he do it? It's a huge combination of factors. It's everything from making sure that businesses are not overregulated, get, getting rid of a lot of the unnecessary regulation. A lot of that is EPA-related. Uh, EPA That's one. Two, renegotiating trade deals. 
You have to do that. We lost 700,000 jobs just to NAFTA. We'll lose millions to the TPP, which we know Hillary Clinton supports. Then it's making sure that our energy sector is breathing again, that we put the Keystone Pipeline in, that we take off the caps on, uh, on coal mining, and that we allow our energy sector to breathe and to grow and to employ people. So those are just some of the factors. If you go beyond that, again, cutting the corporate tax rate is a huge part of that because it will allow American businesses to employ people and to grow, and as they grow, to employ more and more. What about the proposed personal income tax cuts? How, how is that going to lead to new jobs? Well, look, you look at 12, that, you know, if the income tax right now is way overcomplicated, seven tax brackets. When you have three basic tax brackets, 12, 25, and 33, what that leads to is more income for people to spend. And when they spend more, businesses grow and businesses in turn hire more people. That's basic economics. We're speaking with uh, Boris Epstein. He is an investment banker, finance attorney, and senior advisor to the Trump campaign. This is Decision Florida. You can get the latest on Hurricane Matthew on this Florida public radio station and also via the Florida Storms app. Uh, Boris, I want to introduce you to Andy Haroldson. He's a part-time English instructor at Miami-Dade College. We spoke with him uh, earlier uh, this month about taxes, about income taxes, and about his economic hopes for this election. And I've heard about people talking about cutting taxes, but I've never, in my 60 years, I've never seen where it had that much of an impact on how much money people made. So, you know, when they talk about cutting taxes here and cutting taxes there, and and, and um, I've, that I, I don't, that doesn't mean much to me. Uh, Boris, what do you say to somebody like Andy, who who obviously says we, we've heard this tax cut strategy before, but doesn't feel like it's impacted his take-home pay? Well, I, I think he's you know maybe missing some very important parts of American history, such as the Reagan revitalization of the economy. That's what happened. He cut taxes. Uh, under Carter, taxes were sky high, and we were in a deep, deep recession. And under Reagan, the country rebounded because of, because of lower taxes. So just, I mean, he's just historically incorrect. Let me just come back, uh, Boris Epstein, to some analysis from the Tax Policy Center. Now, um, talking about the, the amount that would be cut from the federal budget under the Donald Trump plan, $9.5 billion over 10 years. Um, I mean, the Tax Policy Center is saying, you know, it would boost incentive to work, save and invest, but I'm quoting here, barring extraordinarily large cuts in government spending or future tax increases, it would yield large, unsustainable deficits. So what's on the chopping block? You're looking at Medicare, Social Security. What what would you have to cut? We're looking at fraud, wasted abuse. That's number one. Fraud, wasted abuse accounts for billions and billions of dollars every year. Just in, you know, if you look at just unemployment fraud, fraud wasted abuse, it's, it's several billion dollars. How so, will you go after that fraud, waste, and abuse? Are there investments in inspector generals, in investigators? How are you going to identify and root that out? A lot of that is cyber-based, actually. You know, now that everything is obviously computerized, you could root out fraud, waste, and abuse with smart cyber technology that is able to go after and root it out because it's not like it's being very well hidden. So uh, it's going to be investments and get smart investments in technology and, of course, in individuals who will be making sure that you know, the country's money, the taxpayers' money, is not wasted. We don't have a $20 trillion deficit that's going, that's going to pay for nothing. You know, if you, look, if you drive on roads around where I am in New York City, the roads are terrible. So what are we paying these sky-high taxes for if the roads aren't even good? Well, many of those taxes in New York are, are local and, and state taxes, not necessarily national and federal taxes. Well, the, the federal taxes for the highest bracket are, you know, in the, in the high 30s, because sometimes they go up to the low 40s. So... 
and then you add on state, you add on you 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 know you add on city, and you end up you know, people in the highest tax brackets are paying well over fifty percent. So we have to reform the tax code. There's no question about it. Boris Epstein is the investment Epstein. Uh, Epstein. Pardon me, Boris. Boris Epstein. That's what it says in front of me here, and he just corrected me. Mr. Epstein will continue with us. He is a senior advisor to the Trump campaign, and this is Decision Florida from Florida Public Radio. From Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. I'm Matthew Petty of WMFE in Orlando. And I'm Tom Hudson with WLRN in Miami. Be sure to stay tuned to this Florida Public Radio station. For the latest on Hurricane Matthew, you can also get the latest on social media. Be sure to follow Florida Storms on Twitter and Facebook. And we're talking about the economy and the election. We spoke with Boris Epstein, a senior advisor with the Trump campaign. Well, Donald Trump has called NAFTA the worst trade deal in history. Mexico is the fifth biggest trading partner in the Jacksonville-Tampa Customs District. Through July, trade with Mexico through these Florida ports is down almost 14%. Uh, Boris Epstein, what specifically would Donald Trump change? We have to look at the way that uh, you know we, do, we trade with, uh, with Mexico and China. Our trade deficits are sky high with both. We have to make sure that, you know, the, in terms of China, the currency is not being manipulated. In terms of Mexico, that the goods that are being shipped in the United States are offset by the goods that we're shipping out. And before NAFTA, we were having a trade surplus, and now we have a trade deficit. So obviously, the, the calculation has not worked. NAFTA has not worked, and that was a huge part of, um, you know, of President Clinton's trade policies. And obviously, you know, Hillary Clinton called TPP the gold standard would be a huge part of, uh, of Hillary Clinton's trade policies. We, we need to make sure the American worker is protected, and they're not being protected right now. You know, we're, you know, we, there was just, just in 2015, there was a $50 billion trade deficit with Mexico. Just to clarify, I mean, you were talking about, when you talk about Hillary Clinton saying the TPP is the gold standard, and you're referring to something that, you know, it's a previous policy, policy position. She's now changed her position there and, and doesn't support the TPP. <laughs> no one's buying that. Uh, and, you know, even... Now, the governor, of, the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, was a good friend of the Clintons and loaned them money for their first house. He came out and said, well, we know that she really does support it. So she, she spoke in favor of 45 times. And then when the wind started blowing the other way, yeah, but she said she, she changed her position. But we all know she supports it. Uh, Boris, there has been a strategy, a trade strategy, for many administrations to go after uh, what are called multilateral trade pacts, right? So many countries are involved in one agreement. NAFTA is part of this. The TPP is part of this. Many, many countries, as opposed to a unilateral trade where it's just the United States and one other country. Uh, uh, Does a Trump administration, would a Trump administration, continue to go after a multilateral approach to try to engage many countries under one trade deal? As long as it's smart for us. Sure, listen, if, as long as the deal works for the United States of America, we're not going to cut any option off the table. We're not going, we're not going to say we're not, you know, that we wouldn't approach multilateral trade agreements. And sometimes, and sometimes they can make sense. But in terms of NAFTA and the TPP, they simply have not. When you think about uh, NAFTA, when you think about the kind of tariffs that uh, Donald Trump is calling for, for goods from, from Mexico and from the likes of China, um, I mean, the flip side of that is those countries are likely to impose higher tariffs on U.S. goods. So how do you offset those tariffs? Mr. Trump has not called for tariffs. He said tariffs could be on the table if China continues to manipulate its currency. 
because we have to stand up for ourselves. We're, we should not be bullied in the, in the international trade market. So that's all he's saying. It's not as if the Trump administration is going to be imposing tariffs on trade on day one. They will be on the table as a you know a potential way for us to protect ourselves. That's but, what we're saying. But doesn't that mean they're on the table for the other side, for the counterparty too? Sure, but listen, the United States is right now still the stronger entity when it comes to China, when it comes to Mexico. Now we're losing that position thanks to Clinton and Obama, but for now we still have negotiating power. So while we have it, we need to make sure that we protect ourselves. What would uh, those kinds of negotiations potentially mean for consumer goods for the United States, a United States consumer that has seen uh, wages only just begin to creep up, but has seen lower cost of consumer goods really driven by global trade, particularly low-cost manufacturing in Asia, China, Vietnam, and elsewhere? So we're for smart trade. We're not, we're not against trade. We're not against globalization. We're for smart trade, and for, we're for Americanism. So that's the key. So what, what the Donald Trump administration is going to do when it comes in is we'll look at the trade deals like NAFTA. And we won't, it's not about scrapping anything. It's about making sure that a deal like NAFTA is renegotiated in a way where both the American worker and American consumer are protected. And that's very possible because before NAFTA, that's the relationship we had with Mexico. But then we decided to give the... You know, the store away uh, in NAFTA in the mid-90s, and that's what we've resulted in now with every year over $50 billion deficit with Mexico. Let me ask you about the American worker. You've mentioned the American worker uh, often when it comes to trade policy and what that could look like under a Trump administration. Of course, exporting jobs is not just about manufacturing jobs. Uh, Leanne Barber is retired now. She's a woman living in Broward County here in South Florida. Uh, we spoke with her uh, earlier this month, and she said she'd been working in information technology in Seattle before she retired here. There were five banks headquartered there. They all had their own IT departments. Lots of jobs for those people. And, and over my lifetime, and, and I contributed it through my automation processes, we consolidated and got rid of thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs. The MBA theology... Um, in that's practice in the country today is all about cost reduction. So, Boris, when you talk about trade packs that protect the American worker, would a Trump uh, uh, trade policy uh, reduce a company's ability to search for and use lower cost labor? Well, we will make sure that we do is that companies are not leaving. And that's what you've seen happen across this country. But what does that mean? Big does business. that mean headquarters? Big does that business. mean incorporated into a, into a foreign entity? or No, what that means is that American jobs are not going overseas. And uh, monies that are overseas are able to come back because we'll have that 10% repatriation right. tax. And that'll, and that'll allow for the companies to bring their money back, which, they, so, which both Democrats and Republicans want to do. So, so to, to, to Leanne's the, point, though, to Leanne's point, it sounds like there, there would be policies in place that would limit a company's ability to export into lower-cost labor countries. There'll be, there'll be policies that, that both incentivize and work to work with the companies to make sure that they don't leave, that they stay in the United States and employ the American worker, because that's what would need to happen in order for the country to thrive again. When you think about things that you, you want to bring back, though, I mean, if you talk about manufacturing, for example, has has the horse kind of well and truly bolted on some of those industries? Absolutely not. And, you, and you, if you look at the car industry, for example, you probably would have said that in 2009 that the horse was bolted. But now, you know, with a very significant investment from the government, um, and you know, in some cases successful, in some cases less so. But the car industry in America is beginning to come back. But now again, we're seeing some of these car industries, some of these car companies move their jobs overseas. We should not allow for that to happen because you know, real unemployment in this country is way over 10 percent. And we need so to you're make saying sure government investment. Continue. 
You're saying government investment in the likes of the car industry has been a success story? I'm not. What I'm saying is that the government propped up the car companies, and now the car companies, in some examples, are thriving. In other, in other examples, are having more a more difficult time. But overall, a lot of these car companies are also taking their jobs overseas. And what we cannot have is that these car companies, who were in some way, in some instances, propped up by the government and bailed out by the government, now taking their workers overseas. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, Florida doesn't have much of an interest when it comes to automobile manufacturing, but in your neck of the woods, Orlando and the Space Coast, a lot of interest in those uh, technology and, and space investment jobs. That's right. And uh, just thinking about the, the amount of interest there's been from the candidates so far in the space industry, and look, the likes of Florida today, the newspaper uh, headquartered in Melbourne there, um, gave Trump an F rating for space after his recent visit to Melbourne. I'm just wondering, Boris Epstein, I mean, is this commercial space economy even on Donald Trump's radar? Absolutely. Listen, every sector of the economy is on the radar. Right? We're running a campaign that will make sure that this country is working again, because the numbers the Democrats throw out are just not true. You know, they talk about the unemployment rate, but really that, that's after people who've left, who've left the employment force, who've left the workforce. It's after people who are working part-time, which is, by the way, a lot of it caused by Obamacare because people don't want to hire that 50th, 51st worker. So we are absolutely focused on every sector of the economy, and space jobs are a big part of that. So how would a Donald Trump presidency encourage investment in the space economy? What specifics are there? Well, again, it's about looking at the space economy just like you do every other sector of the economy and making sure that the investment into it is done in a, in a manner that's smart and that brings back the, you know, the, the return on investment for, you know, is, is sensical, that you're not just putting money in and that money, like with, you know, with solar panels, for example, but the money that comes in has to have a results that come out of it. And that's what we're going to be doing. And we will absolutely uh, have you know, different provisions, different, different policies that are going to incentivize folks to invest in a space program. But we have to make sure that the businesses and government entities that are taking in some of those monies are, are working in an efficient manner. Boris Epstein, is NASA on the right track now with its partnership with some of those commercial entities, particularly with uh, getting, folk, you know, getting astronauts into low Earth orbit as their, their goal is? We'd have to take a look at you know, each one of those on a case-by-case basis and make sure they're, be, they're profitable. But, of course, as long as there's a private-public partnership that's profitable and that's, being success, that's successful without you know, overarching government subsidies, that's something that's, that we're going to look to keep. I want to ask, too, about NASA. I mean, uh, Donald Trump has compared the United States to a third-world uh, country, rather, as far as its present-day space program goes. It does making America great again, including bringing uh, NASA's funding back to, say, you know, 1960s levels? Uh, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be, go and tell you exactly what levels we'll be looking to bring it back to, but I think what would be heavily under consideration is to make sure that NASA is well-funded because NASA is a is big part of, the, you know, part of the defense program in the United States. So you have to make sure that we're protected, and, and NASA is an important player in that. Uh, Boris, uh, Donald Trump has made the cornerstone of his campaign to make America great again. If Donald Trump is elected to a four-year term in the White House, how will Americans know when America is great again? When they're working, when America's, Americans are working, when jobs Unemplo are back in this country. Unemployment rates below 5%. Right, right which which does not count people who left the workforce, does not count people who are working part-time. That's true. And you have to look at the real unemployment rate, which is over 10% in this country. And you look at the malaise in this country. You look at the fact that you know, people, are, people are disappointed. Over 70% of people in this country want change. So you have to look at jobs. You have to look at national security. You have to look at the spread of ISIS in the Middle East, which is all thanks to the failures of Clinton and Obama. 
And you have to make sure that people are not, you know, I live a block away from that where that bomb uh, went off in New York City. Americans need to be, feel free and secure in their streets, and that's not the case right now. Boris Epstein is a senior advisor for the Donald J. Trump for President campaign, joining us from his office in New York City. You can join the conversation on our uh, social websites, our social media streams. Use the hashtag Decision Florida. For the latest on Hurricane Matthew, stay tuned to this Florida public radio station and also follow along with the special Florida public radio emergency network app, Florida Storms. Boris, thank you for joining us here on Decision Florida today. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You're listening to Decision Florida from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. Austin Goldsby joins us now. He's an advisor for the Hillary Clinton campaign. He also served as a chairman on the Council of Economic Advisors. Austin Goldsby, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to just start with a question that we asked our previous guest uh, from the Trump side, uh, just talking about the uh, Federal Emergency Management Administration and with Matthew upon us um what kind of uh fema would be would be be would we be looking at under a clinton administration in terms of funding and how that agency operates well i think i mean that that um that has not been a forefront issue as you know in the presidential campaign but the the history of uh fema management i think has been usually pretty strong with Democrats because they didn't come at it with an ideology of we we ought to privatize and get emergency management out of the hands of the government. I think you, you've seen the Clinton campaign put some priority on both preparedness as well as responding to the emergencies and wanting much more to acknowledge and invest in things related i know the the issue of climate change seems to be a controversial one in the presidential campaign even whether it exists but hurricanes floods droughts um storms and emergency management that comes from weather related events uh the clinton campaigns outlined a pretty solid uh investments in preventive care and and i think would be would be pretty um responsible in management of fema you know much the way that some of fema's strongest days uh in my view were in the original clinton administration uh before the bush administration kind of gutted the uh, programs austin you mentioned uh flood and that's certainly always a big concern here in flood prone florida would uh, hillary clinton administration restrict rebuilding in flood zones and at-risk coastal areas, especially those that are insured with federal subsidies like the National Flood Insurance Program? I don't know the details on that. I would be surprised um, if they did, but I don't know the details, so I, so I shouldn't. Um, I, I, by no means am I a deep expert on the on emergency management. Sure. Um, but what I about the rebuilding of those flood-prone areas, and, and especially using federal dollars, FEMA dollars, and then uh, uh, flood insurance subsidies that are backed by taxpayers? Like I say, I, I don't know the, the details of the emergency management positions. I do know they've, they, the the Clinton Kane ticket and the and the campaign have invest are calling for substantially more investments for all of the things that result from climate change. One of which, obviously, I don't, I don't tell people in Florida if sea levels rise, that's that puts the flooding danger to Florida 
at a, a much higher alert level. But the, 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 they they got investments in, in a whole bunch of things that related to climate change. So let me ask more of an economics, a financial question regarding yeah. the, the flood insurance program, at least $24 billion in the red. Uh, that has been uh, 10 years, 11 years in the making, really, since Hurricane Katrina. There's been some calls to essentially erase that debt and start again. Yeah, I, I have seen that. I don't totally understand how one erases that and starts again. Because <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it's I debt do to think, the federal government, right? I mean, it's the federal government's debt to itself. Uh, yes, in a way uh, it is. But, uh, you know, uh, the, by by that reasoning, there are, uh, there are other parts of the federal government. You know, if the Fed owns treasuries, um, you might say, oh, we could just terminate the debt because the government owns uh owes the debt to itself, but you can't really just terminate that debt without having major repercussions on the bonds that, can, can you that re- fund it. Can you renegotiate it? We just had a, a surrogate from the Trump campaign talk about the potential of renegotiating that debt. Uh, you know, the... The problem with you might be able to you'd have to look at what the form of the debt is. We there are situations where renegotiation is forbidden, like with student debt, where it doesn't make any sense um, that you can't refinance student loans the way you can, say, a mortgage. On the other hand, um, Donald Trump has personally advocated renegotiating treasury debt in a way that all financial experts believe that the renegotiation he's talking about is only possible with junk bonds like the bonds that Trump Industries had. If you tried to do that to treasuries, that would be considered a default and would be financially catastrophic. So I think the the idea that everything is a wheeling, dealing negotiation as regards debt held by the US government I think is potentially very dangerous you got to be you got to be quite careful before you do that if we want to have relief for the people who owe money um, then I think we should explicitly have that we, we should debate that issue and I think if we're if we maintain the flood insurance program um, of exactly the form as the as the way we have it now, we do have to think through how are the premiums going to work. Yeah. Are we operating this like an insurance company in that we're going to try to cover our costs with the premiums, or are we doing something else? Austin Goolsbee, stay with us, senior advisor for the Hillary Clinton campaign on the economy, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He continues with us. It's the economy and the election. You're listening to Decision Florida from Florida Public Radio. From Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. I'm Matthew Petty of WMFE in Orlando. And I'm Tom Hudson with WLRN in Miami. We spoke with two top economic advisors for the Trump and Clinton campaigns for this program. Be sure to stay tuned to this Florida Public Radio station. For the latest on Hurricane Matthew, you can also download the Florida Storms app. And you can add your voice on social media to our program on the economy and the elections today. Use the hashtag DecisionFlorida. And Austin Goolsby is still with us. He's a senior advisor for the Hillary Clinton campaign, former chair of the Council on Economic Advisors. 
Uh, Austin Goolsby, want to just play a little bit of sound here. Anne Reese, registered Democrat in North Miami Beach. She says her economic issue this election is pay. Making more money. I mean, but how does a candidate um, influence a company to want to pay their um, employees more? How do you do that? I don't see how they can do that. So making more money is always more important to me because at the end of the day, I need to take care of my, my family. All right, so a question there from uh, you know a voter, a pretty important question. How do you uh, incentivize employers to, to pay their, their employees more? How would you do that? Or how would you yeah, see look, a an important question, maybe the most important question. Hillary Clinton identified early in the campaign that it was going to be her single most important uh, goal for for her presidency is trying to turn around this stagnation and decline of wages of ordinary Americans. Um, I'd say the Clinton approach comes at it from a few sides. One is uh, the incentive slash legislative approaches. So she she advocates raising the minimum wage, raising their income tax credit. Uh, to raise people's ordinary workers take home pay uh, after taxes, encouraging companies to have profit sharing so that if the company does well, they share that with the employees. So all of those are kind of on the legislative side. I would highlight the basic philosophy behind the Trump economic plan is the view that if you cut taxes $6 trillion, overwhelmingly for very high-income people and very big corporations, that we will hope that they will take that money and they will use a lot of it to raise people's wages. And I don't think that when we tried that approach in the 2000s under George Bush that they did anything of the sort. Uh, They just kept the money. The Trump campaign goes back a little further in economic history to the 1980s and the Reagan tax cuts as real stimulative to the economic Yeah, well, they they want to say... uh, they want to say Reagan, uh, when in fact what they're doing is exactly what they did in the 2000s. Um, and it did not work. It worked exactly the opposite. Okay, so Ronald Reagan uh, was not massively cutting corporate tax rates um, in the way that Donald Trump has proposed. He was not massive, he was not proposing uh, massive. Uh, repatriation holidays to let big corporations bring back their money. Uh, and he was not for outlining these loopholes that uh, that Donald Trump would create. George Bush did almost exactly those things that Donald Trump's proposing, and it did not lead to higher wages. So when the Clinton approach is one that's, uh, that is going to hold those companies to account, but also provide incentives for them to raise wages and try to rebuild an economic growth plan that is broad-based, so therefore more sustainable, not as prone to bubbles and busts. I think that's how you get ordinary people's wages to go up. And we actually had, let me just say, we actually had the first bit of good news in a very long time, in decades, 
from the census report that yeah. came out about a month ago, mm-hmm. in which showed that middle class wages rose the most last year of any year on record. Yeah, this is the 2015 and, number. And we saw Florida median wages begin to increase for the first time in about 10 or 11 years. But I want to ask exactly. you about one piece of the incentive that okay. you just mentioned and Secretary Clinton uh, talked about during the first presidential debate. And she spoke about uh, incentives uh, to encourage profit sharing on the part of companies to share those profits with employees. What does that look like so that uh, you counter the argument that it is the federal government telling private companies how to pay their employees? Some would argue you already do that. The government already does that with minimum wages and, and other uh, labor regulations. But this profit sharing incentive, what could something like that look like? Well, think of... Um Think of the incentives we have in the tax code now for various forms of retirement savings accounts. And so because the government does not require people to provide their employees a 401k, but it does outline tax incentives to encourage companies to do that. And as a result, thousands and thousands of companies – offer millions and millions of their employees those types of accounts. More and more of those accounts are self-directed, 401k-type accounts, 403b for those of us who work for nonprofits. The yes. tax incentives predominantly go toward the employee as those those savings are taxed, presumably at a lower rate uh, in the future as opposed to a current rate. But what about incentives for the companies themselves? Yes, but there, there are incentives for the companies, and that's why the you're saying that you're explaining why you, the employee, like to use your 401k or your 403b. Um, but you also need to ask, why did the company bother to offer you one? And the answer is partly because the federal government makes it it makes it easy for them to do so and gives them some tax benefits for doing so. So the idea of Secretary Clinton would increase those benefits? Yes, such and as- she's, she's outlined. I, I refer you to the website. They, they have a fairly uh, detailed legislative fixes, maybe you'd call it, uh, legislative ideas of how to encourage profit sharing by companies. And there have been many companies who complain that it's not easier to do that, that really the the reason silicon valley is so heavily engaged in that relative to other industries is because they have stock market options to play with and people who are not high-flying Internet companies who yeah. don't have stock options to play with say, well, what about us? Well, such as the I mean, hospitality industry, yeah. Matthew, yeah, in your exactly. neck of the woods with the, the tourism business and, you know, the sure. world's happiest place and, uh, where you're at, the <laughs> beach where I am. You know, you're talking about barbacks. You're talking exactly. about waitresses. You're talking about dishwashers and, 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 and those types of hourly low-wage jobs. Are they included in that kind of profit-sharing legislation incentive? Hopefully, yes. Um, for sure, they would be included in the legislation. But as I say, mo- most of the discussions about profit sharing um, are not like minimum wage, where it's uh, where it's uh, the automatic requirements. They're more trying to get employers, and especially small employers, to uh, to participate in those. Austin Goolsby, though, on the other hand, I mean, you talk about the reception and how it's been sort of well-received by and large, but at the same time, you have some analysis, Tax Policy Center, for example, saying the Clinton plan wouldn't appreciably change incomes for most American workers. You also have a group of 300-plus economists signing an open letter calling Clinton's economic plan wrong for America and saying it would repeat policy mistakes of the Obama administration. So 
How do you sort of square that when, when you talk about this plan is sort of growing thing, you know, growing the pie for everybody? Well, you, there, there's a few things in, embodied in that uh, question, and, and let's distinguish them. The Tax Policy Center uh, is quite different from the letter you're referring That letter w- was a hyper-partisan effort, um, and the, the, let's, let's return to that. So the Tax Policy Center is a totally legitimate, um, nonpartisan entity that analyzes uh, tax policies. They have believed for a long time um, – in a way that the economy has been invariant to uh, tax policy, that the trends in inequality or in wages are not that heavily determined by uh, by what, what comes out of Washington. Mm-hmm. But the distribution of income after the tax policy, uh, the tax policy center shows is really different. Uh, under the Trump plan versus the Clinton plan. So that's partly what I was basing my when, – when I said the Trump plan's philosophy is let's cut $6 trillion from the taxes of very high-income people and very large corporations and count on that thing spilling down onto everyone else – that comes from the tax policy center. So I guess I don't totally agree that w- when you say they don't think it will change wages much, they overwhelmingly think that there is a major difference between the income distributional effects of the Trump tax policy and the Clinton tax policy. Right, but uh, it's not a wholehearted endorsement. It's not. They're not saying. Well, it's they a, don't. A great they're plan. not in the business of endorsing. I mean, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they the tax policy center is is self-professedly completely nonpartisan. So they're not they're sure. not in the business of trying to endorse anything. I think I would encourage anybody who's interested in this topic to go to the tax policy center and just read about the Trump tax plan and compare it to what they say about the Clinton tax plan. I think the Clinton tax plan absolutely goes is is part of a wide-ranging policy that's about trying to get more money into the hands of ordinary American workers, getting their wages up, getting profits shared with them, getting an economy that's going to grow sustainably in a way that everyone takes part, not just the very top. Austin Goolsby, Senior Economic Advisor for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Stay tuned to this Florida public radio station for the latest on Hurricane Matthew, the preparations and the aftermath. You can also follow along using the Florida Storms app. And this is Decision Florida from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. Austin Goolsby, let me ask you about two other industries important to the state of Florida. First, real estate and housing specifically. Kent Bondi is an independent voter. He's actually a shark bite victim. You only find those uh, in Florida. Um, uh, But he's also a survivor of the housing collapse here in 2008, 2009. And he told us that he's worried about another bust. I'm really worried for our economy here in South Florida, especially. We were ground zero the last time. I don't see it out of the realm of possibilities that we could be ground zero again for the next big collapse. And this time ain't going to be a bailout. And that's what I'm really, really, really worried about. Now, a lot uh, has been written and discussed about the causes of the housing bust. And some of those seeds were sown in the early 90s during the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, What kind of assurance could a Hillary Clinton administration give to Kent Bondi about his concerns about the, the, the housing market in Florida? Well, I mean, holy cow, what a combination, right? <laughs> it is a housing crisis, shark bites. Huh? I mean, what's what's next? 
you can never give a guarantee that there will never be a bubble again, um, obviously. That said, as we look back on what happened, um, some of the seeds were sown at the end of the 90s. Uh, I think that's true. The majority of the seeds were sown from the triple whammy combination of middle-class incomes got heavily squeezed, A. B, that led to massive run-up in debt and people taking money out of their houses and the amount of equity in, in people's homes became their only savings. That led to, three, the deregulation of the financial sector and the willingness of banks and financial institutions to engage in the most irresponsible practices um, and speculative practices. Yeah. A number of those practices have been reined in. Would Clinton, would Secretary Clinton continue reining those in? Yes, Reined-in. absolutely. That's yeah. what I was going to say, and that, and that that gets to my point. The Trump camp, Trump is running on the on the platform of abolish the re-regulation of the financial sector and abolish the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that were created in response to the crisis. So uh, I think Clinton's approach would be totally different, and that is try to get money back into the hands of of ordinary American uh, workers and citizens so they would be better able to make their house payments. B, we have a lot less leverage in the system now than we did before. So even if you had some corrections in various markets in real estate, hopefully it would not lead to the kind of system-wide meltdown that we had in 2008. And three, Clinton is absolutely for we've got to keep our eyes and prevent these abusive practices um, from spiraling out of control the way they did before and the way they led to the, to the system-wide crisis that we had before. Just quickly, I mean, what kind of um, investments would Hillary Clinton do or make to spur investment in the space economy? It's on the rebound, of course, from uh, the the downturn after the uh, um, you know the, the shutdown of the shuttle program. But what kind of things is is the, would a Clinton administration look to do to kind of boost that economy? Well, um, I think that you've seen Hillary Clinton personally and the Democratic Party in general have had a major commitment to science and space science. Uh, in particular, and that, that absolutely that will continue. I think it doesn't take much of a lift to look back at the history of technology in the United States to recognize that many of our most important and most interesting technological innovations came out of the space program from GPS you know, to Tang. Uh, and, <laughs> and so I think the Clinton's commitment has been to maintain science, maintain science funding. I think the space program is a, is a major component of that. And for anybody who's a space science buff, it's been a very exciting couple of years. I mean, we've had unbelievable insights and discoveries about our own solar system, about the existence of planets in, in, uh, in other solar systems, and uh, and thinking about the the presence of life at other places in the universe, to to be on a platform which the Trump campaign has has played has toyed with of 
we're going to doubt the scientists. We're going to doubt uh, the value of scientific research. We're going to minimize that. We're going to minimize that funding. I think it's a mistake. It's an intellectual mistake. It's a technology-slash-economic mistake. And I think, you know, when you look at there's a hurricane coming that may hit Florida, how do we know when to evacuate? How do we know to build these models of those hurricanes? It's the space program highly involved. It is precisely our weather satellites that have allowed us to reduce so dramatically the the kind of losses of life that uh, that we used to have from, from big hurricanes. And, and I think that that really couldn't put this in more relief. Matthew, he went with GPS and Tang. He could have gone with Velcro, <laughs> but he went with Tang. <laughs> Uh, Austin Goolsby, uh, nice to hear from you, professor of uh, economics at the University of Chicago and a uh, economics uh, policy advisor for the Hillary Clinton for President campaign. Thanks very much, and everybody stay safe. That's our program for today. We invite you to join us on social media. Share your experience of this political season with us. Use the hashtag DecisionFlorida. You can also download a podcast of this program at iTunes. Search for Decision Florida. Decision Florida is produced by WLRN Public Media in Miami by Julia Duba. Polly Landis is our booking producer. Katie Lepre, our engagement producer. Jason Zabka, our technical director. With engineering help from Charles Michaels and Doug Peterson, WLRN's program director is Peter Martz. We received production help this week from WMFE. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Tom Hudson. This special program from Florida Public Radio has been a presentation of WLRN Public Media in Miami. Thanks for listening.